My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Hi everyone, with us today we have Dr. Chris Frasher, who's a paediatric anaesthetist and a previous doctor with the MSF. Thank you for joining us, Chris. You're welcome. Can you tell us a bit about your journey initially with regards to how you got into anaesthetics? Uh, initially, I was interested in anaesthesia and emergency medicine and paediatrics. So I did junior rotations for all those specialties. And then uh, I decided to leave Australia and take up an anaesthetics job in the UK. And once I started doing anaesthetics, I was very happy um, doing anaesthetics and kept on going. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into the paediatric side of things? Um, the paediatric side of things was following working with MSF. When I worked with MSF, it was a very high paediatric caseload in terms of percentage, because there's lots of younger patient population compared to Australia. And uh, I found the paediatric patients the most challenging and the most entertaining and, and most most fun, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And initially when you were in uh, as a junior doctor or as a medical student, mm-hmm. how did you come to uh, enjoy anaesthetics to the point of pursuing it as a career? Um, I did like a six-week rotation as an intern and I was really impressed at the the manual skills in particular of the anaesthetists and their ability to cope with crises and I just thought it was really cool that when everything is going wrong that this guy turns up and doesn't get upset and just does things and fixes things and so I really wanted to be that person I guess. Mm -hmm. And did you ever consider anything else along the way? Uh, yeah, paediatrics and emergency medicine. I worked in both of those, and um, emergency medicine for quite a long time. Actually, when I was even when I was working doing anaesthetics with Doctors Without Borders, I'd come back to Australia and work at St Vincent's in the emergency department because it was easy to organise, and yep. and I still really enjoy that too. Mm-hmm. And what uh, caused you to move to the UK? Um, I think fear of boredom would be the main thing. I, I sort of grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne and I was doing rotations in suburbs of Melbourne and I could see myself just getting a job in the suburbs of Melbourne and that being it. And I really was afraid of missing out on opportunities to understand how things work elsewhere and have a broader kind of view on the world. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you find that going to the UK kind of fixed, plugged that hole for you? Not at all. Uh, the UK is not that dissimilar to here. Everyone speaks English and there's a similar kind of health system and similar health problems. And so after I'd done that for a couple of years, I was uh, I passed a sort of mid-grade exam in anaesthetics and I wanted to go and do something more and so that's how and that's when I enrolled with Doctors Without Borders. Sure and so can you t- talk to us about the lead up into that so what were the events preceding and how did you first apply? Um, so I was working in the UK and I'd done what was called I'd done a couple of exams which got me to the level of a staff grade practitioner which is like a half a consultant I guess it's a, it's a qualification I don't think exists anymore but there's still some people practicing at that grade in the UK um, and I was, I didn't want to stay in the UK, that was for sure. And uh, I really felt like I didn't want to settle down into a career in a comfortable spot. And so I'd always been interested in Doctors Without Borders. So I went along to the 
Uh, first I enrolled and I did a anaesthetic for difficult locations course in Oxford, mm-hmm. which was quite a few weeks, and we actually gave very simple um, field-type anaesthetics in the local hospital with patient's consent, which was really good training for training you out of using doing complicated things. And then I went and applied at the office in London, the MSF office in London, and they told me that they had many more uh, experienced applicants than me and that they only need supplied a couple of anaesthetists a year to some other office that they relayed them onto and that essentially I wouldn't get a job through them. And which left me feeling a little bit confused because obviously it's a global organization and didn't make much sense. And so I said to them, so isn't MSF French? And they said, yes. And I said, so if I caught the train to Paris and I applied there, would that be different? And they said, well, we can't say um, what goes on in Paris. And so I did. And I went to the meeting in Paris, a recruitment meeting they have once a month. And I caught the train over. And at the end of it, I went up and with a CV in my hand. And I said to the guy, um, you asked for CVs for people interested. I'm still interested after all the, all the briefing. And... Uh, he said, what do you do? I said, anaesthetics. He said, can you go to Burundi on Tuesday for two months? And I said, I think so. I have to check. And that was that. Okay. And this course that you did, the anaesthetics in difficult locations, mm-hmm. is that like a prerequisite or anything for the MSF? Or is that something that you did for yourself or on your own accord? I did that on my own accord. Um, I don't think... I think the prerequisites at MSF offices differ between countries and have a lot to do with the training in the, in the country that's doing the recruitment. Um, and in Paris, for example, they even recruit anaesthetic nurses. So mm-hmm. the, they have a different kind of setup and a different recruitment strategy than, say, Australia, where they're only recruiting, I think, a consultant anaesthetist or fellows. So, like you mentioned, the different uh, offices have different, like you said, prerequisites. Is that still the case now? Or was yes, that the, it's okay. still the case now. The, the policies, you can't make a universal recruitment policy because of all the different training systems in the different countries around the world. Right, mm. right. And so if, for example, someone wanted to get into MSF and was unsuccessful like you were initially in one place, is that something that you'd recommend, trying a different one? I'd say why not. Um, It's obviously a bit harder from Australia because, you know, the closest next place you could apply would be a hell of a long way away. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Uh, a bit different when you're living in Europe. But it's easier when you're in Europe, yeah. Yeah. How many missions have you done and how long were they? Um, I I honestly can't remember how many. Um, I did it essentially full-time for nine years. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess would be maybe 30 missions. Okay, and so how long does each mission typically last for? Uh, in anaesthesia, not very long, because it's usually, well, almost all of the anaesthesia missions I did. I moved on to, I did some other kinds of missions later, but I can explain that further on. But all the anaesthetic missions I did were war, um, con- conflict uh, based, and yeah. so. If it was a terrible situation, you'd probably only stay for two or three weeks because everyone gets burnt out after two or three weeks. Um, if it's kind of a not too bad situation, you'd stay for a couple of months. Um, but uh, in general, three months would be a kind of a limit for anaesthesia. Mm-hmm. And how much time do you have in between the missions? Well, you have as much as you like uh, yep. because you're a volunteer. And so basically um, you tell them when you're available. And so after the missions, I typically take off you know, a few weeks. Sometimes I take off longer and go and work in the UK and do a locum and keep in contact with resource resource rich medicine. Um, so it was it was pretty variable. Pretty variable. But um, I guess I was working about for those nine years, uh, probably about ten months a year. 
you were working for about 10 months of the year. Right. Yeah. Okay, sure. And how, how was working those 10 months? Um, it was it was often quite stressful. Um, you'd be working in... I worked almost exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa and almost exclusively in very isolated places where there were no um, other medical teams or other expatriates. And so it would basically evolve being in a, in a small town in... In an, in an African country and uh, having very limited possibilities of getting in and out. Um, we didn't have much in the way of communication. Um, there was no email or mobile phones for the first few years. Um, and all of our communications were very limited. So, for example, a friend of mine died and I found out through an overnight radio message that was um, translated into into text with a telex machine. And, and it took me then another... 12 hours to answer and I missed a funeral and so things like that were very mm-hmm. very difficult mm-hmm. and then in terms of the work um, it was variable a lot of the time there were curfews so you couldn't work at night um, and so you'd get some sleep as long as you don't mind you know sometimes it'd be a bit noisy at night time but you a lot of the time you couldn't I couldn't work at night time so in the jobs where I could work at night time, it was exhausting because you'd end up working 24 hours a day and it was kind right. of variable how much, you know, the caseload was difficult to predict. Um, and there was always issues of security and and very commonly issues of um, interpersonal difficulties between expats as well because yeah. you're living with people that you're working with and you can't get away from them and mm-hmm. it's not particularly easy sometimes. So that social isolation, mm-hmm. is that quite common in no matter where you go with the MSF? Well, I guess that those things have probably changed a lot now in that people can have instantaneous contact um, through data and, and uh, internet now pretty much everywhere. Yep. Um, but I guess you're still kind of lacking that, uh, I guess, real-life communication. True, you're still lacking that real-life communication and it's still very difficult to work and live with people that are you know, not the same as you necessarily and people that you don't necessarily have much in common with at all or, and may not agree with a lot of the things they believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite, a challenging, um, it's quite a challenging situation, I think. How do you deal with a situation like that where I guess you're all there for similar altruistic reasons but you might have very different personalities and you might clash and whatnot? Um, I guess I'd have to take issue with the word altruism. I'm not sure if altruism really exists. Like, I, I certainly did that job because I really thought it was good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm inherently suspicious of people who say they're doing things for other people because I think in the end there must be some kind of benefit to the person. Sure, um, yeah. But there's no doubt there were shared goals that we could always fall back on in terms of um, disagreements. When you're having disagreements with someone and, you, and it's hard to get along with them, it's, it's easy to say, you know, hang on, you know, let's just drop it. You know, we're here for the same job and we're trying to do the same thing. And if, we don't, if one of us doesn't agree with what the job is and what, what we're doing, then that person should leave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a couple of times people that I was working with were forced to leave because they didn't really align themselves particularly well with the job that was at hand. Mm-hmm. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T H E M E D C O L A B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. 
Now, you mentioned you worked almost exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. Was that by choice or was that where MSF placed you? Um, that was where MSF placed me. Basically, if you're available to work with MSF, you can inform them of your availability and they'll make a proposition. You can say yes or no to any proposition that they make to you. Obviously, you're a free person. Um, however, if you say no lots of times in a row, then perhaps they might not ask you again. And mm -hmm. Personally, I didn't really mind where I went that much and I just kept saying yes. Um, I went to Burundi the first three missions because at that time it wasn't long after um, the Rwandan uh, massacres and Rwandan genocide. And so they wanted people who could get along in French a little bit, which I could when I went there. Um, but they didn't want French or Belgian expatriates because they were perceived very negatively in the region. Mm -hmm. So there was this window at that time where they were looking for people um, who could do anaesthetics in a war situation, the civil war in Burundi, and who could make a go of it in French even if they weren't perfect. And so I got asked to do that three times. At the end of those three times, I'd been about 18 months and I did long missions and my French was good after that. And then yeah. after, after that, I was, could go anywhere that was French speaking. And, and then I ended up learning Portuguese as well because I went to a couple of Portuguese speaking countries, um, Angola and Mozambique. Hmm. Is, there, is there an average day on a mission? And if so, can you take us through it? Or just, I guess you can single out a day that you can remember and just walk us through it? I guess I'd qualify it by saying that, you know, my experience was really in sort of small scale conflicts um, and isolated small missions. Um, there are sort of bigger surgical missions that like do referrals from, you know, uh, more modern wars, I guess you'd say, or more advanced wars like the Middle East that are quite different. Um, but I guess a typical day uh, in a sub-Saharan African surgical mission would be um, getting up at sunrise like everybody else and going outside once you can because it's usually a curfew um, going for a walk then having some breakfast and then heading on to the hospital and seeing the patients from yesterday um, one of the challenging things is that people often died overnight and you wouldn't know why and that would happen regularly and it's very very difficult to get used to compared to environments we work in where we always have some kind of an idea what happened and if we don't we can usually find out eventually mm -hmm. but the people who did die often would die at night time and so that was a common and challenging start to the day was finding an empty bed and being told by the night watchman that the patient had died and the family had taken them home taken the body home and then you would see um, who was waiting and had presented for emergency surgery and most common cases were uh, road trauma and, ortho and obstetrics. Um, and road trauma would be people who had been banged up the day before and managed to get there just before nightfall or come in early in the morning. And the obstetrics would be women who had been waiting overnight, typically with um, dead babies and obstructed labour would be the most common indication for a caesarean. And then any wounded that arrived you'd look after as well, and, but they tend to come in bursts, from mm -hmm. sort of not every day. Mm -hmm. And so then you'd go th get through the day, you'd organise yourselves with the surgeon and all the staff and, um, and get started and go through the patients. You couldn't get through very many compared to a, a modern facility like in Melbourne because you don't have all the staff to move patients around and don't have all the systems. And so you get through, I don't know, half a dozen cases in a day, four or five was it, was it difficult going from like a large tertiary type of hospital from either Australia or in the UK to this kind of almost primitive landscape? 
Uh, yes and no. Like in some ways, it's it's kind of easier because you're very centered on what you're doing. You don't have all of these distractions that you tend to have in in Australia or the UK. Um, like a lot of my clinical time here is kind of polluted with, um, I guess, questions and phone calls about other patients or you know, other days or next week or. Whereas uh, when I was working with doctors out borders, borders, I just concentrated on one patient at a time. And that's mm-hmm. actually something quite reassuring about that. Um, what's difficult is that nobody else ever knew anything about anesthetics except for me. Mm-hmm. And so I had no one to turn to if, if something went wrong and no, no peers to refer to. Um, and, and that's very isolating and you feel a bit scared. Do you think it would be different now in that sense, given that we can communicate with each other, like you say, through data and whatnot, in terms of referring or asking other people questions? Uh, yeah, I think there'd, there'd be chances that it'd be a lot different. Certainly you could get some kind of answer, but most of the things that go wrong in anesthesia go wrong within minutes, and right. you're not going to get an answer that you need tapping on your phone app while you've got a blue patient or a half-dead patient in front of you. So, right. so I think some of those issues would still be relevant today. Yeah. What would you say was your fondest memory of working with NSF? Hmm. So that's a good question. Um, I guess there are a number of situations where I was um, stuck in the middle of a conflict, and I think principally of uh, Angola and Liberia. In both situations, I ended up stuck in towns for weeks, in towns that were... Uh, where you couldn't get in or out and there was shelling going on and, and there's a feeling of uh, camaraderie you can get from being stuck somewhere with people and trying to well firstly survive I guess but secondly also achieve something in a high pressure situation and so I guess that feeling of, of you know, high intensity um, interpersonal relationships in, in a high pressure environment it can be very satisfying mm-hmm. And conversely, what what would you say was your saddest memory from working with NSF? Uh, Well, probably the same kinds of situations where you... Like seeing people randomly killed, particularly children, is is very, very... um, It's soul-destroying and uh, it's it's really quite terrible to suddenly see people dead and particularly ones that you knew alive, you know, just before they died. Mm-hmm. And that happened on a regular basis, and that was that's that's very distressing. Mm-hmm. And was there any times where someone very close to you, or living in the same quarters, or anything, was attacked or um, attacked? Uh, no, I, I guess don't... affected by the conflict. Oh yeah, oh, there's uh, there was a a guy who was killed, uh, a local employee in Liberia who was living in the same house as I was, and he was killed one day. We, um, he went to shift some equipment and a mortar fell and he was killed. Must be very difficult to deal with these deaths and whatnot. How do you, how do you deal with that when you don't have your personal support system like you would back home? Well, I guess you develop another support system amongst mm-hmm. the people that are around you. And, and I think human nature is that people that are in difficult situations actually do have more interdependency than people in comfortable situations so it's not it's not that hard um, and then I guess also you your expectations of what life is about change over time like um, you know, violent death to me is not surprising 
mm-hmm. and the way it was before I went and worked with Doctors Without Borders and the way it is, I guess, for most people in Australia. Mm-hmm. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. What uh, specialties or subspecialties would you say are well suited to the MSF and which ones aren't? We know the, the regulars such as emergency, trauma, obstetrics and anaesthetics. Are there any other categories which are quite suited? Well, I think that none of our training is particularly well suited to working okay. with Doctors Without Borders because the way you practice and the, and the population groups that typically um, are being looked after, the, the diseases are completely different. Um, and even if you were a tropical medicine specialist, which would probably be the most relevant in, all, in a way, uh, you still wouldn't be able to function without all the tests and stuff that you're used to. And so... Um, MSF basically has handbooks, which are like short um, practical books with decisional trees on what to do for different specialties. Um, And anybody who has an open mind and a medical degree and a little bit of manual skills, like put in a drip and, you know, can um, stitch up or do a few sutures, is a potential candidate. a lot of the the work in sub-Saharan Africa, which is probably about three quarters of MSF's caseload, is um, essentially tropical medicine and refugee health, mm-hmm. um, and malnutrition, and you know acute malnutrition. You never see that in Australia, so no one no one in Australia knows how to look after acute malnutrition because it mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I ended up having to do some acute malnutrition work and. If you've got common sense and you can follow guidelines and you're not too proud about always knowing everything about everything, then you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. How does it work in a situation where, for example, malnutrition might be the presenting complaint, but the resources aren't there to fix the problem? I'm not sure I understand that question. So, for example, if, if you've got lots of patients presenting with malnutrition mm-hmm. and whatnot, and you're giving them advice about how to or trying to fix their issue... Is it? Do, do you find that they are able to carry on that advice after they leave, or do they just end up representing because of the situation, oh, because right. of the socioeconomic status that they have? Okay, so acute severe malnutrition is um, is rare mm-hmm. outside of very poor countries and outside of conflict and starvation. So it's basically starvation in children. Yep. Um, the there is a medical treatment that is required or else a high percentage of them will die so mm-hmm. you give the medical treatment yeah and it takes about usually about three weeks to get them eating again and uh, sure. and safe to leave at that point they go back out and what's happening is happening mm-hmm. and so msf's role in in that context often is to um, try and engage uh, other actors to feed the population that can be governmental or non-governmental um, to protest or to speak out um, on behalf of the population so people know what's going on. Um, and occasionally, MSF, in, and I've seen it done in a few situations, will actually just start feeding the whole population as well. Yeah. Um, but that requires logistics that are beyond an orga- a medical organisation. And so a medical organisation like MSF doesn't do mass feeding very well because 
you know, you know lots of trucks and lots of planes and mm-hmm. lots of boats and, and mm-hmm. lots and lots and lots of money. You mentioned that I guess the training programs here don't necessarily prepare you for what you might have to do at MSF. Yep. How can uh, someone, I guess, either mentally, physically, or educationally prepare themselves for work in the MSF, or is it just not really can't be done until you're in the thick of it? Um, I guess you could go and work in some kind of resource poor environment on an elective or an exchange. That could certainly help, um, just to get an idea of what it's like not to have all the luxuries mm-hmm. that we have in Australia. Um, in anesthesia, and anesthesia, there are a number of courses that um, prepare um, people for anaesthetics in simplified circumstances. I'm not sure for the other specialties, but um, certainly for refugee health, there are courses as well that people can do refugee health courses. I did a diploma halfway through my career with MSF. I did a, pardon me, a diploma in tropical medicine mm-hmm. in London. That was pretty useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no, there's no panacea. Like there's no, there's nothing that's really going to prepare you. Yeah. Yeah. And you, we kind of talked about how, uh, for example, in Australia, they take uh, consultants and fellows. Mm-hmm. So is there any other point in your career where you can apply to the MSF or is it that's pretty much it for Australia? Um, I, I can't say I know the details of the recruitment process very sure. well, but my understanding would be, I guess there's a possibility that they would take people who are more junior for jobs like nutrition and refugee health. Like sure. You, you, there's no particular advantage of being a consultant paediatrician over mm-hmm. a paediatric registrar when you're looking after acute malnutrition, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, does uh, working with the MSF affect career progression at all, would you say? Yeah, I think it does. I think it makes you look like you're not as serious and as adherent to the sort of production line of, of the sausage factory that produces medical consultants. And there's no doubt that it has... Uh, a negative impact and, and a lot of people see it as not particularly serious compared to a I guess a how would you put it a, a very highly educated faculty driven career um, there's no doubt I was very isolated for a long time and mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not a, a very uh, highly theoretical practitioner mm-hmm. And when you come back, do you find those relationships that you might have formed throughout, I guess, your years, of your junior years and whatnot, do they kind of break down or are they still there? Is it difficult to reconnect when you get back? It is difficult. It's alienating having experiences that are difficult to share. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of my motivation for getting involved in a documentary was to actually have something to show people. Um, and I, I've managed to maintain a couple of longer-term relationships with people that I knew at university and before that um, but really only a couple Mm -hmm. and so was it a lot of rebuilding once you came back to working in tertiary centers Um, I haven't had that much time to rebuild I've been back for two years I've got a couple of small kids so I can't say I've rebuilt that many relationships no okay fair enough and what pushed you to stop working for MSF I was burnt out. Burnt um, out. Yeah, I was burnt out at the end. Uh, I had a number of situations where I'd been diagnosed formally with PTSDs. Um, I was tired and I guess I was just sick of chaos really. And mm-hmm. and for a long time it had very positive sort of net effect on me and then I realised at a certain point that I tipped over and it wasn't, wasn't having a positive effect on me anymore. Were you burning out quite frequently or was it just like one big burnout right at the end? No, I think I was just gradually... 
grinding, burning out. Yeah. And with sort of troughs and then still going down progressively over a couple of years. Yeah. And how did you deal with the burnout once you got back? Did you take time off or? I did. I took six months off um, and then I started working in the French um, hospital, public hospital system because I Mm -hmm. was based in Paris at that point. Uh, and the six months I took off, I studied Arabic at the um, Oriental Languages Institute, and that was like a break and really good for my head and, and sort of put me back up on my feet. Mm-hmm. And are you finding that now that you're... Actually, why did you decide to move back to Australia? Uh, essentially because I became a father. Okay. And yep. uh, in France, I was working 75 hours a week, and here I work 45 or 50, and mm-hmm. get paid a lot more. So I really wanted to mostly just see more of my kids once I knew I was going to be a father. Mm-hmm. How has working with the MSF and seeing what you've seen affect your practice here today? Uh, I guess I have a capacity to stay calm that exceeds the average. Um, I, and I have a practical problem solving capacity that's above average as well. Um, there's some issue with the machine or equipment. I can usually sort it out pretty quickly from first principles and I'm not flustered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and are there people that aren't necessarily suited to the MSF or can everyone kind of adapt to the situation that they're put in, do you think? Uh, I think there's no doubt that some people should not work with MSF. Yep. Um, about 5% of people who go to work with MSF uh, pretty much turn around and come straight home. Yeah. And that, the last I heard, that figure hadn't changed despite all this different sort of very sophisticated vetting procedures. Um, and they're the people who do want to go and get recruited. Um, a lot of people who apply aren't accepted. Basically, you, I don't know, you, there's, there are a number of issues. You, you need to be able to really seriously overcome your own ego um, and to... Um, have empathy for people living in different contexts, different cultures, mm-hmm. um, cope with not understanding what's going on around you in languages. Um, there are a number of you know very significant challenges, and if you're expecting to you know go shopping in Dubai on the way home and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, you're in you're looking for the wrong organisation. And also, if you're looking for an organisation that's really going to sort of pamper you and look after you. Um, whether financially or you know emotionally um, it's the wrong organization yeah okay for people looking to uh, contribute I guess um, and do things similar to MSF but like you say may not be necessarily mm-hmm. suited is there other things that they can do I'm sure there are like there are many exchange programs and mm-hmm. service missions that people do around different parts of the world I don't have any experience in those things though yeah fair enough Really appreciate your time, Dr. Brescia. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. All right, guys. See you next week.